Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue. I'm the uh, Executive Director for Western Growers Center of Innovation and Technology in Salinas, and we are back yet again with another episode of Voices of the Valley. And my good friend Candace Wilson is joining us, as she always does. Candace, great to see you. Thank you. Likewise. How are you today? Doing pretty well. You know, even though this will uh, be delayed by a week or two when it finally airs, so we would be looking in a rearview mirror at this point, but Keep us posted on your weather saga. So how's it going? Well, there's blue skies above today. Blue skies. The rain hit yesterday pretty hard. We have about probably a foot of snow has melted, which is great, leaving us with five-ish left on the ground. Tractors have been going. I've never worked a shovel so hard in my whole entire life. So we can get in and out of the house now. Sounds good. So nobody can get to Tahoe, but they can get to Nevada City and come see you. That's exactly right. Yes. Perfect. All right. Exactly. Noted. Well, we've got a, a terrific guest uh, for this episode, a good friend of Western Growers, Ian LeMay, who is the president of the California Fresh Fruit Association. Ian, welcome and thanks for joining us. Uh, good afternoon. Pleasure to be here with you. You know, that old adage of all I know is what I read in the, we'll call them the trade papers, is when I read it. And you sure show up a lot these days in terms of weighing in on all the important issues in uh, California agriculture. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, you know, we always like to get started with uh, having our guests talk about their background and kind of their journey to what they're currently doing, and then we'll go into that. And uh, so let's start there. Yeah. Well, again, really a pleasure to be with you uh, and look forward to the conversation. As you stated, Ian LeMay, president of the California Fresh Fruit Association. I'm a San Joaquin Valley boy through and through, born in Corcoran, California, but raised primarily in Fresno. One side of my family are Dust Bowl Okies, and the other are, uh, my mother's a, an Air Force brat. And they happen to meet in Fresno, California, Fresno State. Like I said, raised in Fresno. I'm one of three boys. Uh, had the opportunity for college to go over to San Luis Obispo and attend Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Studied ag business with a concentration in marketing. Was lucky enough to meet a lovely woman over there named Molly McGowan at the time, who uh, I've been fortunate enough now to be married to for 11 years. We joke that we don't. Uh, Molly actually happened to be from Fresno, went to a rival high school. So, uh, you know, we didn't know each other until Cal Poly. And we joke that we never really actually talked about moving home either. We just uh, were both fortunate enough post-graduation to find employment back here in the Valley. My employment actually was home-based in Omaha. My first job was working for the Lindsay Corporation, which manufactured pivot irrigation systems. Again, uh, headquartered out of Omaha, but I was uh, dubbed the California market specialist. That last portion of the term probably was a bit of an embellishment, but I was tasked with trying to promote and reintroduce uh, the usage of pivot irrigation here. Uh, in California. We had some moderate success in the places of California that you'd expect, uh, the west side, down in the high deserts, and a lot of places where forage crops are currently being grown, um, and really had a great experience with Lindsay and enjoyed my time still uh, close with their leadership there. But in uh, 2011, got a call kind of out of the blue from a now a friend, but an individual and congressman, Jim Costa, had the opportunity in uh, 2009 to intern in the congressman's DC office, uh, was able to build a great relationship with Jim as well as his existing staff. Uh, and like I said, Jim called me up out of the blue after his 2010 election and 
asked me if I'd be interested in coming and uh, handling his water and agriculture portfolio and working within the district. Uh, and I had always had an interest in, in politics and public policy and thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take this opportunity. So I joined up on Congressman Costa's staff at that time as a district rep. Shortly thereafter of joining, uh, we had some staffing transition and I was uh, promoted to his district director, still handling his ag and water portfolio. And then he was nice enough to add uh, transportation, which in our neck of the woods was really a a heavy concentration on uh, the California high-speed rail and uh, its implementation. And it was an honor to to help uh, serve and uh, work with the congressman for four and a half years. Uh, We got a lot done. I got to work on the 2014 Farm Bill reauthorization and really got to serve and build strong relationships with many of our great constituents here in the central San Joaquin Valley. Right about at the end of 2014, an individual who I had worked with in my capacity as district director for the congressman, Barry Bedwell, who at the time was the president of the California Fresh Fruit Association, again, kind of called me up similar to the way the congressman had a few years prior and asked if I would be interested or if I had ever thought about uh, coming into the ag advocacy space. Um, My wife and I were expecting our firstborn at the time, our daughter, Emery. And uh, while I loved what I was doing, the two-year election cycle is a bit of a, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And I was uh, looking for a little bit more consistency uh, than an every two-year reassessment of whether we are going to keep our job. The the congressman's very adept at retaining his electability, uh, as he's been an elected official since 1978. Uh, So he obviously uh, has the stomach for it. I didn't. So joined up with the California Fresh Fruit Association in 2015 as their director of member relations and communications. Got to spend my first four years with the association building uh, strong relationships, not only with our members here at CFFA, but also with our peer ag associations uh, across the state and across the nation. Uh, And then I was fortunate enough in the spring of 2019, uh, we again had a, a leadership transition here at CFFA and the board of directors was nice enough to extend an offer for me to serve in the role of president, which I've held ever since. The organization has been around for, we are leaving here tomorrow to head to our annual meeting to celebrate our 87th year. As a standalone organization, we actually have lineage that goes a little bit beyond that, uh, all the way back to 1922, uh, where two other organizations that ultimately merged and became, uh, at the time, the California Grape and Tree Fruit League. And we have enjoyed those 87 years as representatives and advocates for the California fresh fruit industry. As, uh, I guess, a way of background, the commodities we represent are peaches, plums, nectarines, apricots, table grapes, apples, pears, persimmons, pomegranates, blueberries, cherries, figs, and kiwi. That's 13, if you were counting. And uh, some may ask, well, what about other commodity, fresh fruit commodities like citrus or avocados? We, of course, have members who grow uh, many of those commodities, but those single commodities are lucky enough to have standalone organizations like California Citrus Mutual or the Avocado Commission that do a lot of the advocacy work on their behalf. So we work in partnership with those associations to try to lift up and draw attention to the needs of the fresh fruit industry. Um, Well, I mean, that's quite a commodity mix. You know, California is some uh, three to four hundred different, but you're taking a good run at uh, being a good percentage of them with that. Talk uh, a little bit about, you know, in broad strokes, the issues and challenges that industry faces. I mean, I, I know there's been a decrease in acreage in some of the crops for a variety of reasons. So, you know, I mean, this is probably a tough question for anyone these days because who I'm not sure any of us rely on that old phrase, past as prologue, but uh, get your crystal ball out. Uh, you know, where's the industry heading? Because there's, there's sure a lot of uh, challenges these days. So, you know, how do you and your membership look at things? 
You know, transition is the word of the day. Uh, in terms of issue areas, our bread and butter, our heart and soul, because of the commodity sectors that we represent, truly has been agriculture labor. Our roots run extremely deep in that area in positive ways and negative. And to this day, because our commodities still holistically depend on the human hand to pick, pack, and ship our commodities, uh, labor will lead every conversation in terms of, of, of an issue, a focus area for the California Fresh Fruit Association. It has sit for 87 years. I expect it will continue uh, well into the future as well. Uh, you're right to point out that there's uh, definitely transition amongst all 13 of those commodity sectors. Some of that is transitions within the family, families that we represent making decisions on, on their own family's future. Some of it is associated with uh, state regulation. A lot of it is associated with state regulation here in California on things like the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which again, we represent permanent fresh fruit. So when our members put a grapevine or a tree in the ground, they're making ostensibly a 20 to 30 year commitment to that tree or vine. And to sustain that, you need a lot of things, but the number one thing you need is water. The implementation of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act as an overlay to the areas that our commodities are grown, we're at ground zero. Much of our commodity sector is grown in what are called critically overdrafted groundwater basins. Those are the first basins that are required by law to implement their groundwater sustainability plans, their GSPs. And we are dealing with that implementation and ultimately that goal of sustainability now and for the next uh, 17 years until that law is supposed to be you know, fortified in its implementation, meaning that those groundwater basins are in compliance and, and sustainable. What that means is that growers across the San Joaquin Valley are having to assess how they access water. And once they identify how they access it, they have to take an assessment on how much they have and how much they will have in perpetuity. And then they're having to make the decision as to whether that amount of water meets the need or exceeds the need of what they're currently growing. And that's going to change the face of California agriculture at large, but definitely will have influence over our commodity sector as well. So let me let me jump in a little bit with what you just said, you know, because you've been a good, strong advocate for ag tech and, and supportive of all of that. So given the scenario that you just laid out, obviously that's going to speak to data and all the tools that are involved in precision ag. Uh, What's the pace of uh, adopting tools and how does all that affect innovation and, uh, you know, kind of the mindset of growers that they're, you know, they're going to just have to look at things a little differently in terms of yeah, you know, well, keeping I would, score? I would say with regards to water efficiency, California is far ahead of many other places within the United States. The better part of the last two decades, we've been fine tuning and tracking every drop, every molecule of water that we're applying. You know, this is no longer uh, the good old days of going to the end of the orchard, the end of the vineyard or the end of the check and opening up the floodgate and just, you know, in three hours going and checking, did it, you know, finally reach the end of the row. Our members know every drop of water that they are applying. They know where they're applying it, how long, how it was utilized by the plant. And so we are benefited by that data that we collect and the efficiency in which we apply that water. So I, I would say in, in ag tech, water really led the day. Now, your efforts at the center and the different coalitions that I know you, Western Growers and CFA have, have been supportive of that are trying to now lead the conversation and incentivize the adoption of ag tech within the workspace to create either more efficient practices within the growing practice, the harvesting practice. That I think that is slowly starting to be adopted. We're seeing incrementally. Uh, I was on a, a call this morning with some of your peers at, within Western Growers and Dennis Nuxel and Tracy Chow in our collective efforts uh, with regards to the upcoming farm bill and how we and the 
actually the federal government could accelerate the adoption of ag tech uh, through cost share programs. And we've seen that when the federal government leans into areas like this, they really can catalyze the adoption of ag tech. And again, I think the big part that, and, and you've done a great job in this, Dennis, at drawing attention that we are not trying to replace historic ag labor with ag tech. If anything, we are trying to create more efficient, safer places of work where ultimately the individuals working in, in that sector can earn more and, and you know have more advanced applications of their job. And so it's a bright, exciting future, especially for many of the commodity sectors that uh, I have, I'm fortunate to work with. And it's a necessary component to sustain our future. I, going back to water a little bit, I'm just curious, what percentage of your time is spent on water-related issues? Yeah, uh, Candice, I kind of chuckle because as I shared with you earlier, I was fortunate to take over the organization as president in May of 2019, spent much of my first couple months getting to build my team, kind of getting my, I guess, my legs underneath me as the leadership of the organization. And then March 2020 came around right about the time I thought I knew what I was doing. And the world got turned on its head for two and a half years with the pandemic. And I vividly remember during the pandemic telling my staff, man, I can't wait till we get back to the days where we can just concentrate on ag labor and water. <laughs> and I am sitting here today telling you, man, am I eating my words. Because while nothing about the pandemic was easy, it was, you know, a, a very uh, interesting, collaborative, challenging time. The historic fights associated with those two real pillar issues of ag labor and water, you know, they live up to the, the stories. And so water, we're talking about it every day. Um, I'm fortunate enough to act as chair of a coalition called the Blueprint for the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, we helped found the organization about four and a half years ago. It's a coalition of ag associations, local communities, water districts, NGOs, all interested really in the implementation of Sigma. And what we like to draw attention to that is that back in 2014, when the state passed Sigma, they didn't just get to pass the law and say, God bless, good luck, and uh, see in 2040. They have a responsibility to stand with industry, to stand with our, our rural communities and make sure that uh, they're appropriating adequate resources. And in what I mean by adequate resources, infrastructure dollars to help us identify, maximize and maneuver as much water as we can into these areas so that one, instead of the doomsday million acre, a million acres of irrigated agriculture going by the wayside due to Sigma, we try to save every inch of ground we can that we help fortify and bolster access to clean drinking water for our rural communities, which we already know due to natural causing uh, contaminants in, in some of our soils and, and aquifers, uh, but also some of the associated challenges with overdrafting with regards to being adjacent to ag land and others, the challenges associated with rural water. The state has a, an immense responsibility and so to help us meet the, this calling. And so over the last four and a half years, we have engaged in a coalition format to come up with a plan for the Valley to come up with the recommendations for the, the governor and the legislature to consider on where to invest in the most meaningful pieces of infrastructure. And so that takes up a lot of time. And what I'll say is what only adds to it is when Mother Nature uh, turns on her head after three years of significant intense drought and decides to open up the heavens and rain like it is now, which is a blessing. We love it. We will take every drop. But now what we're doing is working with, again, the governor, his administration, uh, to try to maximize uh, the utility of that available water so that we're not back in a water-deprived situation next year, right? And, and, and what a lot of people don't realize, you'll see in the headlines right now, is that, you know, oh, we've had this great winter, the drought is over. Well, 
it took us three years to get into the drought we were. It will take us three or more years to get us out of it. So we need, this is a fantastic winter, but we're going to need one next year and the year after. And at the same time, we're going to need to build additional conveyance systems, fortify existing conveyance systems. Our three largest south of Delta conveyance systems, the California Aqueduct, the Delta Mendota Canal, and the Frank Kern Canal are aging, broken, and we need to fortify those or else we're not going to be any better, even if we have the available water. Sure. Um, so now's not the time to get lazy because there's water. We have to pretend, imagine that we're still in this drought environment. Well, and misery loves company. And I have to say that while I truly feel for all of the states and municipalities and, and California inclusive of that, that are drawing off the Colorado, the Colorado River issues have really heightened the overall conversation around Western water. And my hope is, you know, that California has, with these storms, have maybe mitigated a year's worth of water issues. The Colorado is not for the better. So that, I think, will continue to drive a really a national view and focus on how we utilize water. You know, we like to remind people that when ag accesses water, we're not wasting it. We're using it to grow food, which we kind of need. And so uh, the hope is, is that even with this immense amount of precipitation this year, that you're right, that the public's attention does not move away from the real need to have a meaningful conversation about our water system here in the West, here in California, but really across the United States. So let me ask you a question with that in mind. And, you know, we're on the Central Coast. You know, I think uh, the folks who are running uh, the organizations we both serve are being forced to really kind of take a decade long look of, you know, where can I get the combination of the right production area, water and logistics. And uh, so, you know, vegetables are a little more portable because we're, you know, depending upon the time of year, 75 to 120 days in the ground, if you're a spring mix 30. So you can move around a little bit. You know, your membership is also expected to be in the market on a year round basis. But, uh, you know, the production partners are oftentimes in Latin America. And obviously, we're seeing more great migration uh, to Mexico, Peru, et cetera. Because of this water situation, is that kind of movement accelerating or like, okay, let's expand our presence down there? Or is, you know, it is what it is, you work with that. And, and I know there's some seasonality to that, of course, but, or is it just, hey, we're going to have, just have ground go fallow. Do you have a sense of what, how your membership's looking over the you next know, I, decade relative to water? Well, you know, I'm always a big fan of growers tend to often have the mindset, well, I'm just going to be the last one, right? So they, they try to- they, Oh, you guys they, aren't still doing that, are you? We gave that up a while ago. <laughs> But I would say with regards to water, I think you have seen California companies scale themselves. I have not truly seen any entity, you know, wholly move out of California or the United States specifically because of water. Now I've seen people move out of our commodity sector or decided to make more meaningful investments in commodities, you know, outside of our 13 so that they can maybe have some more maneuverability than it being a permanent commodity. Most of the growth outside of the United States, as, as you identified, really comes down to seasonality and being able to service your retail partners for 365 days a year with a quality piece of fruit. And for California, a lot of it comes down to the cost of operating here in our state due to state mandated regulations. Uh, it's just, you know, I tell my members they should be proud that they can produce under such stringent uh, regulations and we should wear that a bit as a badge of honor. But at the same time, this is a business too. And if they can identify ways to do it more cost effectively, they're making those investments and those maneuvers for their business. 
And it really does come down to a case-by-case basis per company. Some members are the Californians. They're going to stay and operate in California, and that's what they what they want to do. Others have a much more global mindset and have either made strategic partnerships or made their own personal investments outside of the United States. Really, for our commodities, I mean, blueberries, of course, you can find across you know the whole Southeast and many other states. You know, 42 states grow peaches, although I think a California peach is almost a different commodity on its own than those 41 other states. But really, for California and the commodity sectors we represent, we're, we're just doing it differently, and you really can't do it the same way we do it here. And so I say that just to say that you know other states really aren't in the game plan in terms of maneuvering their companies into places like Arizona or New Mexico, like you've seen maybe in the pistachio industry or, or others. I'm, you opened making a reference to this, but I'm curious about the California family farms and making decisions. We talked a little bit just now about them, you know, the decisions on where else they may be growing. But on the subject of consolidation or selling or becoming more corporate farms, can you talk about some of those trends and some of the other decisions that may be influencing which direction some family farms are headed? So I will say one of the things I love about the California Fresh Fruit Association very much is true of, of many of my peer organizations like Western Growers and Citrus Mutual is we are still fortunate enough to say that the predominant amount of our membership is made up of family farms, multi-gen family farms. And when you go into these corporate offices, these guys might be, you know, four or five, 6,000 acre operations, vertically integrated, sending fruit all over the world, you know, importing fruit from all over the world. But when you walk into the office, it's still dad, daughter, son, nephew, you know, best friend from high school is running the sales department. I mean, it is still very much a family and community environment, which I think surprises a lot of people. And they might see the scale that is California agriculture and think, oh, that's corporate farming. But in my experience, it's nothing further than the truth. And and it is not just one entity. When I think of that, it is, I can honestly say the majority of the members I represent are still very much family operated entities. Now, are we seeing consolidation? Yes. Across the board, there are entities taking assessments because of all the pressures associated that we've already talked about and making a decision. And a lot of that is also just the value that is California agriculture. There are outside firms who see this as a safe place to invest, either for a natural return or just a sustained value on their dollar. That is true today. That was true in the 1980s when my dad's been in agriculture for a long time, but he had a a stopover with Prudential handling some of their ag investments. You know, this is a longstanding element of California agriculture is the idea of outside money or capital investments. And we're seeing it right now. Quite frankly, like I just referenced my dad, when I talked to my dad about the 1980s, it sounds a a heck of a lot like California agriculture right now. Now, the exciting part about that is while the 80s might have been a bit of an up and down period for California agriculture, what came after it were the 90s and early 2000s, which were great years of growth and diversification of California agriculture. And so that's that's my hope is that right now we're seeing the map that will be the next 30 or 40 years of California agriculture shifting and positioning. Uh, like I've already said, the work that Dennis does at the Innovation Center, the, the onset of what ag tech and ag innovation could mean for California agriculture in these next couple decades. I think we're in a place that we, if the chess pieces align, we can be in a really exciting and you know fortunate time in the future. Now it's going to take good leadership. It's going to take an acknowledgement by our elected officials that agriculture will continue to have a strong presence within California. 
but I don't think we should be afraid of the change. And what I will say is, you know, I was talking to an investment firm just this week uh, that recently partnered with one of my members, not as a as a buyout, but as a means of additional capital so that this member could uh, diversify and expand their business. It was a personal conversation. They have an interest in the fortification and future of California agriculture. It was not transactional in nature. They had true interest and excitement for where we were going. And so I think we would probably limit ourselves or do ourselves a disservice if we totally characterized it as a, a, ch- a change or a loss in culture. And so, you know, I'm cautious, but I'm also optimistic with what we're seeing. My intent and my hope and what I love is I love being in meetings where I not only have what we call the primary of the business, the CEO, the owner, but that they bring their kids or the next generation that they're deeming as their next you know, leadership suite. That's exciting for me. And I come to work every day wanting to figure out ways to sustain that so that I can see them succeed in their next generation leadership roles. And then I'd love to see you know their next generation too. Um, so that's the goal. Well, speaking of that next generation and you know, kind of the years that lie ahead, you know, and, and you uh, alluded back to the pandemic and, you know, water's obviously uh, probably, it may overstate it a little bit, but not a lot, an existential threat. But what are, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you hear, frankly, domestic conversations that I never would have envisioned, you know, of this status of the supply chain, food security, that sort of thing. So we're going to, we're going to get the next generation, but what other external forces you think they're going to have to deal with, you know, is the logistics, you know, obviously a lot of folks talk about the climate, but when you're a permanent crop, you're in the ground. Uh, So, so, you know, you have to figure out ways to deal with that. And I know you've been involved in, you know, when there were challenges in the port, you know, those sorts of things. What what are some of the, just kind of the other big challenges uh, your membership is going to have to deal with? So uh, the maneuverability or our ability to move our perishable commodities has definitely been challenged over the last three, four years. And it's demonstrated, again, I go back to, you know, meaningful investment by our elected officials. We, for some reason, are not keeping pace with the needs and demands that today's economy dictate. You know, we have here in California and the the commodities I represent, a item that is in high demand globally. You put a California piece of fruit on a Chinese family in, in, in Beijing, China, you put a piece of California fruit on that table and a Chinese piece of fruit, and they're going to take the California piece of fruit 10 times out of 10 because of the trust and confidence that they have in the way that was grown and shipped to them. And that is the fastest growing uh, middle-class economy. And it can mean a great deal to the growers that we represent here if we're able to service that growing middle-class economy. The biggest hurdle is our ability to get that perishable piece of fruit from Reedley, California to Beijing, China, or any of the other multiple regions within that country or anywhere else uh, in the Pacific Rim. My members can't put a container on a truck and send it to Long Beach and have that sit there for two weeks and then have the ship that has a manifest that is supposed to go from point A to point B and somewhere in between there makes an extra stop. And ultimately we're delivering jelly instead of a fresh piece of fruit. We need reliable transportation systems that we can have confidence in that can sustain the cold chain process that is necessary. And that means Again, a strengthening of our global shipping industry. It means that the United States needs to make real, real sustained investments in our ports. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous when we talk about California's economy, the United States economy, and how proud we are and all, and that we're exporting, you know, American goods. And here we are talking about taking capacity out of the Oakland port so that the A's can build a baseball stadium. 
There are a million. This is the controversy I'm looking for there, right there, here. There are a million other places in California that we could build a baseball stadium. We don't need to build it as as at. Well, in, well, well, I think they're going to build that one in Las Vegas. So. Well, that, you know, that it, it, negotiating tactics be what yeah, they are. Yeah, and, yeah. And I would agree with you. But I mean, that that whether the local municipality, the state or the federal government allowed us to expend so much time and political capital around this conversation, when in the greater benefit of the United States, we shouldn't be suppressing or shrinking the footprint of our ports. We should be expanding them. I just I think that leads to just the where organizations like ours have to spend a lot of this time where it's like, it seems common sense. It seems common sense that we should go one direction. And instead we're trying to hold the line so that we don't take a, a step backwards. You know, I go back to water. It's common sense that we make meaningful investments. We are a 40 million person state. We stopped building major water infrastructure when we had 17 million. You know, my analogy is that your wife and you get married, you move into a one bedroom, one bathroom apartment, Ultimately, someday you have four kids. If you're living in the one bedroom, one bath apartment, still, you're probably going to be a little cramped. You're probably going to need to maneuver and, and add some more room. California needs to add three more bedrooms and an extra bathroom for us to actually compete and be sustainable on a whole host of, I guess, of, of different conversation points. And I really think, you know, the state has a responsibility to make those investments alongside private industry, as we always have. I would say, Dennis, to your other existential crisis or, or, or pressures on the industry, and uh, my former boss, Congressman Costa, talks about this a lot of time too, is that agriculture has been its own worst enemy in our ability to do things in an efficient manner. There are fewer and fewer people who are coming from the farm, who are working on the farm, who have a direct association with food production. And with that comes a total misunderstanding of how it's done. And I say this oftentimes when we're visiting with legislators in Sacramento is that they'll drive by an orchard or a vineyard or any other agriculture field and go, man, and see the work being done and go, man, I wouldn't want to do that. And then they go back to Sacramento and try to legislate it so that nobody has to do it. Because if I don't want to do it, then why should anyone else do it? And they never take the time to actually go and talk to the people working in a vineyard or in an orchard and go, do you love what you do? And a lot of people do. A lot of people love what they do. And there are reasons why we have to, you know, the cultural practices of agriculture are applied. But the issue is, is that people either see the headline, they see a 30 second soundbite, and, and there's a total misunderstanding with how we produce food. And the issue there is that with that misunderstanding, as I said, they take that misunderstanding, they take it to a place of government and influence, and then laws are passed that might have good intentions, but the way in which they are applied or the pretenses in which helped formulate it, don't align with the realities on the ground. And ultimately, that is making the jobs of our members significantly more difficult. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit, because I was just, for whatever reason, this occurred to me, you know, I think, you know, there's always a tendency, here's the tough issues, and here are the challenges. And, and you've alluded to, under certain circumstances, you think there's great opportunity. But, you, you know, you've got a pretty, I think, from a consumer standpoint, fun group of products that you represent. So kind of thinking through the product mix, what kind of intrigues you or excites you? You know, I, I'm a table grape guy, but I, I got to tell you, every time I see the, uh, you know, cotton candy grapes, I, I mean, I, I pick them up, I get in trouble, you know, because they cost more than the other ones type of thing. But, but you know, there are some uh, kind of fun products out, out there. And, uh, you know, so when you think about it from that standpoint and consumer standpoint, 
you know, what do you see either trending or what, what's kind of exciting in terms of how product development's uh, trending? You know, I think in a lot of our commodity sectors, a consistent eating experience is always top of mind for our growers and what they're trying to deliver to the end user, the consumer. That's in quality, that's in flavor, that's in, in new experience. I mean, that's what, you know, the cotton candy experience, whether you have one or you have a whole bag, I mean, it's that, whoa, it really does taste like cotton candy. It's the jumbo blueberry that, you know, is is bigger than a quarter that some of my members grow. It's a yellow kiwi that just is a different, you know, again, you, you think of cutting open a kiwi and it's green and the black pits, and a, but, you know, you cut open one and it's yellow and it's, again, a, a different eating experience. And tree fruit, I love the crossbreeds and plumcots and apriums and pluots and, you know, some, my kids love when I bring home, you know, the ones that look like dinosaur eggs with spots and I think it's that it's that the consumption element is an experience and you're right. It's a point of pride for me is that I tell people all the time, we we represent the commodities that you want your kids to eat. And I see it in my own household. When it is California stone fruit season, I better be bringing a bag of stone fruit in the back door every night or else my kids are disappointed. You know, the six weeks that we're blessed with California cherries, we've got bags of them and uh, my kids are, you know, wolfing them down nonstop. Uh, my favorite thing to do with the holidays in the fall is bring bags of California table grapes to our family's table because as a lot of people don't realize that two-thirds of the California table grape crop is harvested after Labor Day. So if you're if you're going to your family's Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas table and don't have California table grapes, you know, you're cutting yourself short. And so it, it really is that experience of consumption. It's something no matter which member operation that I go to or uh, commission meeting. I mean, they are trying to improve that experience, that quality, and, and also that story. So I go back to, you know, whether it's uh, we're exporting kind of American values or California values. You know, when you pick up a, a piece of California fruit, uh, you should have confidence in the way it was grown and the, and the care and the dedication that our members bring uh, each and every day to producing that under, again, very stringent requirements and regulations. And that's not done everywhere else. And so I think it's that story. It's that quality. That's exciting. And I think what makes it even more exciting is, you know, I, I see the passion that our members have for it, you know, for in many cases, their parents had it before them, and in some cases, their grandparents. And as I've already intimated, so many of them are intent on on passing that that desire onto their their next generation as well. Yeah, no, it's funny, you should mention passion. I mean, I always kind of smile when you get the, uh, the peach guys telling you about the joys of binding into a fresh peach. And uh, when I'm doing that, I I should be usually looking for a bid because (laughs) then, you know, you've got the right one. But it's interesting that, you know, and you think back to the pandemic, you know, when people stay home, you know, because my son was a buyer, fruit grew, vegetables, not so much, you know, and they take away food service away from vegetables. Did you ever notice you go out to eat, vegetables come with the entree and fruit's a separate order. So fruit's special. But when you're home, left your own devices, you know. A lot of folks ate a lot more fruit, though. You know, we're the salad bowl of the world. I, you know, I can't remember my kids ever asking for a salad, but they always want berries. So at least we've got, at least we have strawberries in the house around here. So, exactly. but, uh, and you know, and it's interesting. And obviously the Central Valley is a very, very big valley, but you know, between Mountain View Avenue and Manning Avenue, that's quite the corridor of uh, a pretty good, pretty good set of uh, crops. Well, our good friends, Dennis, I you know you spend plenty of time with them at Reedley College. It was actually, I think, at a meeting with you, couple of years ago where and I had never heard the term, but really being the golden triangle right. where stone fruit, citrus, and table grapes all meet along the King's River. 
And it truly is. It's an amazing area. But again, as Californians, you know, 400 crops that run the gamut. And to me, it's a point of pride. We have to be excited and proud of California agriculture. And that's a message I try to take wherever I go is that, yeah, not every place in the world, not every place in the United States uh, has the bounty that we're fortunate to have. Well, that's a pretty good note to uh, end on, I, I think. You know, a, uh, certainly, a, uh, you know, you're presiding over working with uh, folks in an organization that uh, represents the uh, best of California and our industry. And they need a knowledgeable, passionate advocate like yourself to uh, prepare for the future. So, Candace, did we miss anything? I don't think so. It was such a fun interview. And the way you talk about the industry and the people, the members that you serve as well, I think also has, it feels like they're also part of your family. So that kind of message of how connected and special and bought in, I guess you are not just to the industry that we serve, but the members that you serve too, is pretty special. So thank you so much for being here today. A really pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Well, Ian, it was it was great to see you, and we'll we'll look forward to uh, getting getting together, if not in uh, Reedley College elsewhere in your jurisdiction. So, uh, Ian, thanks very much, and uh, we'll see you soon. Candice, why don't you uh, take us home? You bet. Thanks uh, to all of the Voices of the Valley listeners for enjoying another episode of Voices of the Valley, and please be sure to like us and follow us. And we'll be back next week for another episode. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.